It's season six of the Oroch Digital How to Make a Video Game Podcast. In this episode, we're talking Mission Control. Working in it, it's, a, so it's an international global thing. And, and it's a fully fledged industry. So you, you get the scientists and the engineers and the sort of obvious roles, perhaps. But we have lawyers and we have communications people. And we have people who, who make things and manufacture things and design things. Uh, when Tim uh, went into space, he flew on the, the Russian Soyuz spacecraft. And I think it was some Easter holiday homework or something. Oh my God, Jem. Ah. <laughs> You're going to be so, 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 so most pleased with me. Yeah, go on then. So I found myself, uh, was it last weekend? I think it was the weekend just gone. Um, I found myself on the uh, PlayStation Store just browsing deals, which I don't often do. Um, But I found myself there anyway. And I came across this wonderful game called The Witcher. Oh, The Witcher. Which one? Uh, Witcher 3. Um, (laughs) And... This has been on my wish list or on my on my hit list for such a such a long time. It was gonna be my first Switch title because I was like, like, that's the game I want to invest in when I'm mm. playing like hands free or you know on on the big TV. I wanted that to be my first title. It's not gonna be my Switch title because I now have it on PlayStation. Oh, it's such a good game. I'm excited for you. Wish I could play it from the beginning again. <laughs> it's the reason I got my first proper pc because i'd always had them to play warcraft but i'd play it on low settings, so it wasn't very demanding and i wanted to play the witcher 3 and i was like that's it it's time to become a true pc gamer and get an absolute beast of a machine <laughs> and uh oh it, yeah it's not often that a new game makes it into like my top games of all time so yeah, yeah. it's when that happens it's this this amazing kind of feeling because we, we touched on this oh, a number of seasons ago because the same thing happened with me with xcom 2 when that mm-hmm. came out I was completely new to it, but that is now my top game, certainly as an adult of all time. And it, it yeah. pushed um, uh, A Link to the Past and Final Fantasy VII. It pushed them out of the top spots. Yeah, I put like 300 hours into The Witcher. Oh my God. So I was just oh. reading everything. I was like, talking to every person. I did every side quest, every like monster nest. I did all of it because it was just such a fun world to explore. And I just, Geralt was just the coolest character ever. I've just bought actually the audiobooks. Uh, I started listening to them. Um, nice. Just need even more Witcher lore. You're right. I mean, I'm, I'd be amazed if I'm able to rack up 300 plus hours. Currently, I think I've, I think I've, I think I've smashed down about eight minutes and 36 seconds. <laughs> most of that was the opening sequence, which is beautiful. Yeah. Um, I've just kind of got out of the bath and started walking around a room. That's all I've done. Yeah. See, then I'm like looking at everything. I'm like, wow, look at this. And I'm like, oh, the sunset. That's what. That's how I take 300 hours. How like half of it isn't even gaming. It's just me wandering around. <laughs> hey, if a game has you doing that, then that <laughs> world building has been stellar. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so in stark contrast to that, we're talking about mission control. Yeah. The real life Mars Horizon. Mm-mm. So Mars Horizon, it's a game we've been, uh, it's been deep in development for some time now. Um, and it's shaping up to be a lovely, lovely game. Um, and I, I tried to compare like... On a typical day, Gem, when you know you, you walk into the studio, or that that blissful time when we could walk into the studio oh, and not worry about the pandemic, you know, the, the first stress that that you might encounter might be, oh, there's no tea bags, <laughs> or, or or maybe even better, oh, there's no clean teaspoons. Yeah, I wasn't in our old place. <laughs> you know, these are real problems um, in a game development studio. Now, of course, you multiply that by I don't know, say like a billion. <laughs> and then you're in mission control dealing with actual problems where humans are in space, there are, uh, they're conducting experiments, performing all sorts of incredible feats of uh, humanity and science and whatnot. Uh, one of our guests we spoke to was talking about everyone in mission control always has a cup of coffee all the time. So all the time. Just when, uh, when you're playing the game, make sure you have a cup of coffee for that true immersive experience. <laughs> 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 have to make some Marsorans and branded coffee. <laughs> that should be on the on the box art for sure. Make sure you're drinking for the true, authentic mission control experience, Mars Horizon. Gus. But with that said, we do have another guest on the pod today. Yeah, so today we're joined by Libby Jackson, Human Exploration Program Manager at the UK Space Agency. Best job title ever. Yeah, so good. I'm gonna have to that change my so good. <laughs> yeah, we were just kind of saying just before we went live, like this has been quite a guest heavy um season and my gosh has it been worth it like every guest has brought such expertise and such enthusiasm to what they do and yeah the passion is what i love i think 
every guest has been super passionate and mm. I just vibe off of that. I'm like, yeah, teach me. <laughs> yeah, teach me. <laughs> right. Well, without further ado, let's hit that. So, Jem, um, if we keep raising the bar of guest speakers on the pod, uh, we're going to be knocking on heaven's door before we get to Mars. <laughs> because today we've got Dr. Libby Jackson with us. Now, you are slightly acquainted with Libby already, is that right? Yes, we did a um, live stream together. It was really awesome. Uh, Libby was brilliant about telling us about advice about how to get into the space industry and her experiences of working in it. Really cool, really cool career. Um, so yeah, so thanks for that, Gem. Um, it's going to be a good one today. Good, very, very excited for this. So, do you want to give a bit of a bit of a background drop uh, to who Libby is, or perhaps we'll just get Libby to do that herself? That would make more sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hey, um, love to be here. Um, I can do all sorts of things. First thing I, I have to clear up because I feel terribly uh, like an imposter. I'm not a doctor, at least not not a proper one. Not that I've ever ever worked for one. Um, I've been very honoured to have been awarded an honorary degree, but. Um, no, for anyone out listening, wondering how you get to places and all the rest of it, I'm just me. I, I am, yeah, my background is that I just always liked space and sort of as, as I grew up and, and figured out what to do in life, I decided I'd see if I could get a job in this area that I found really interesting. Uh, and so I, I did a physics degree and, and then I did a, a master's in space engineering. Uh, and that led me into working in mission operations. So my first job out of university was working uh, for a company that is, is now Airbus, uh, part of Airbus. And I was um, I helped install a satellite control system. And from there, I managed to land uh, my dream job, really working in, in mission control. Uh, I was working for seven years in Europe's mission control for the International Space Station. Uh, and that was amazing. And then that led me to, to where I am today at the UK Space Agency. So that all sounds super, super impressive. But let's let's rewind because I'm just going through the, the the episode notes now. And there are some humble beginnings with this because uh, once upon a time you wrote a travel guide to Mars. Is that correct? <laughs> I, I did. Seven year old. <laughs> yeah. It just goes to show space was just something I always found fascinating. And I think it was some Easter holiday homework or something. Um, we, we were sent home and had to go and uh, write a travel guide. And the idea was that we, for, for younger listeners out there, you won't remember, but perhaps for people my age and above, you'll remember um, that there used to be travel shops and you'd go in them and they'd have lots of pictures and, and, and brochures where you could go on holiday, you know, real physical printed things. Um, and we were supposed to go get a couple of those and perhaps write about how we'd really like to go to Italy or maybe you know, all the way to America or Australia or something. And I thought, you know, I really want to go to Mars. And that's that's how I ended up doing that. Oh, that's lovely. That's really nice. That's a sort of project my little niece works on and she's seven. But to say, like, you could one day work in the space industry, this is the right track to already have that passion and enthusiasm. That's really cool. Well, well, I had no idea when I was young that you could or, or that I wanted to. This is, this is something it took me a long time to realise. Uh, and I think it's a really important message for, for people to understand and get out now. And particularly anyone um, you know, play, playing the game, anyone is, is interested in space. I, I meet so many people who still say, oh, I really like space. I'd love to work in it, but I can't do that. And you can. We have a complete industry. Um, 40,000 people and more here in the UK working in it it's a so it's an international global thing and and it's a fully fledged industry so you, you get the scientists and the engineers and the sort of obvious roles perhaps but we have lawyers and we have communications people and we have people who, who make things and manufacture things and design things and it, it's yeah you if people want to work in the space industry they can <laughs> Libby, could I ask, um, just jumping back, what you talked about when you got a role at Mission Control uh, working on the European uh, part of the ISS, mm. what would you say that kind of area, what, what's the thing in Mission Control that maybe when, when people think of Mission Control, they obviously think of dramatic moments in a you know, film like uh, you know, the Apollo movie or something like that. What, what's the thing that people tend to get wrong about working mission control and what's the thing that the kind of popular imagination of it maybe gets right? I always used to say to people when I was working there, I said, have you seen the film Apollo 13? Because um, that gets it really right. That really captures um, 
what it was uh, like back in the Apollo missions. Um, and if people said yes, I said, well, it's just like that, but it's less glamorous. Because um, at the minute, uh, and when I was working there, we weren't going to the moon. We still had amazing science going on um, and were keeping humans alive on the spacecraft continuously for 24 hours a day, seven days a week um, on the International Space Station. And just coming up in November, we're going to mark 20 years of continuous human op occupation of the International Space Station in space, which I find mind-blowing now that yeah. anyone who is 20 now, you know, really, really grown adults have never lived in a time where there haven't been humans in space. Um, and you actually you even go back further. And I barely never lived in a time when humans were in space because before the International Space Station, there was Mir, uh, the amazing and great Russian um, space station. And that was flying from the 80s. Um, and it was not, we didn't quite manage to hand over directly to the space station. There were a few months, but it's, it's been... It's been nearly my entire life. There's been the people in in space, which is it's forty years or so now. Um, so it's they they get a lot right. Um, some films get a lot wrong. Um, uh, Gravity is perhaps one of my least favorite space films. But in in Mission Control, um, it it really is people in dark rooms with big screens at the front. It, it is very cinematic, actually. Um, I often liken it perhaps that the atmosphere is, is a bit like um, the same atmosphere you, you get in sort of a place of worship. Actually, I was familiar cathedrals. You, you walk into a big cathedral somewhere in, in the middle of a you know, big main city and you have this large space with great light, you know, windows, but it's very hushed and it's very quiet and very concentrated. And, and that's just what mission control is like. Um and everybody is very dedicated and they, they know what they're doing and they know how important it is. Um, but I'm trying to think of some films I've seen where, where they don't quite always get it right. Perhaps they sometimes um, uh, simplify it a bit and there's a bit much more whooping and hollering and there's one person who's always in the right place at the right time who happens to, to do it. So sometimes the story forces you into things. But generally, um, generally they usually get a, 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 a sort of, you know, some 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 help behind the scenes, and and things are pretty well done usually. In in so in in our game, mission control plays a really quite crucial in part of how the game works. And I guess where we've bought in the mission control is generally um, a mission might go up. Say you know you're sending uh, something to the moon, and for a long period of it, you don't you're not in mission control. So if, if the player's kind of like the top level person there, and then when it comes to something crucial like a landing. A vehicle separation, um, the actual, you know, probe launch, the rocket yeah. launch. Then, then suddenly you're called into mission control to oversee that, and you deal with problems and issues and trying to get it done. I'm interested to know how, when you've got a mission like the ISS, that's always on. How how do they manage the moments where they feel they'll need more input, uh, and yeah. the times when everybody's asleep up there? It's essentially. Um hierarchical and, and, and roles that you just outlined there we have those roles but they're just not always all the same person so um in the world of iss operations the whole thing is divided in, up into basically six month chunks uh, for and anyone is really interested with with the upcoming change to commercial crew vehicles that those chunks might change in length but we call those chunks increments and, and it's just a way of, of, of breaking up continuous operation into manageable parts. And there's a team of people who, who have oversight of, of each six-month segment, basically. Uh, and, usually, and these teams of people, they're, they're the flight controllers, but they're also people who do all the planning, um, the, the mission managers, the people who sort of oversee operations. All the different bits of the puzzle uh, tend to have someone assigned to each chunk and you look, you prepare for that. So, so before any given day that happens um, on the space station, that day has been planned for probably two years. And, and the granularity of that planning starts out at, well, what are we going to get done in those six months? And then you break it down. Okay, so what are we going to do in each month? And then what are you going to do in each week and then each day? And then these plans get reviewed and reviewed by the whole team. But it's, it's by having essentially one team of people who deal with that oversight. Um, so 
taking it through the, the sort of preparation phase, what we call the execution phase when it's happening, and um, the end of it. And they sort of sit on top of the, the, the everybody else um, who are the sort of day-to-day people who come in on shift. Um, and and they come in, then you just come in on shift and you, you deal with that day and you deal with those problems that might occur and, and you pass it on to the next shift. So you sort of have a, a, a running uh, day-to-day thing and then oversight. And people move through the different roles and they cycle around. But but that's how we do it, is, is by breaking it up into a sort of essentially an oversight team and a day-to-day set of people. Fascinating. So, and how many people roughly are involved in, in creating that kind of... Um, so in in Europe, where I was, I, uh, let's see, there must have perhaps been about 50 people um, in the flight control team, and they're the people who just um, are in mission control in the different positions, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, working through that shift plan. And that's replicated around the world. So for the International Space Station, you also have people working in Japan. You've got people working in Russia, in Moscow. There's uh, people in Houston uh, for for NASA. There's also people in Huntsville. They have two control centers um, over in the States. Uh, And then you also have some people uh, supporting in Canada. You have people all across Europe. So it's just at the very core it, it's hundreds to upwards of a thousand. And that's just the sort of the real core layer of people who are there uh, 24-7 running the operations. You, you then have layers upon layers. It's a bit like an onion going out um, of, of the people who support them, all the engineers who are designing things and building things, the, the payloads that come. You have the scientists who are running all the experiments that happen on the International Space Station. But there's, there's over 200 experiments happen in each one of these six-month chunks. Um, at any one time and uh, so that you put all of that together there's thousands of people around the world all coming together to to keep this unique and amazing scientific laboratory uh, running in the sky and um, so I know you do a lot of work about women and getting girls interested into space um, so what is it like uh, as a woman working in the space sector and why do you think it's important to get more women and girls involved in this it, people ask me their question and, and I get well it's, in some ways it's it's no different to, to anybody else. And, and that's for me what, what, what is, is so important and, and I'm always trying to challenge in society. It's, it's not so much about women in the space sector, that though that's there because we are underrepresented, but it's much more about in general, everybody should feel able and empowered to do the things that, that they want to do. Um, and the gender label has nothing to do with it should have nothing to do with it um so i i I have been i think really very lucky from from stories i hear in in that i i've been aware that i have been uh the the only woman in in a you know in a meeting of six ten people and, and that still happens today but generally speaking my colleagues respect me for who i'm there or what i'm there for and and i don't um fortunately seem to, to be treated differently because of, of what I look like or who I am. And I know that's still not true um, for everybody, uh, but it's, it's what the world should be and it's, it's what we should strive to achieve. And, and for me, one of the big messages in the space industry um, is that it is actually quite very welcoming and, and that anyone who wants to come and join it should and shouldn't feel put off um, by labels that society will, will put on them. And, and, and to me, that's what we have to challenge. And, and I've seen it uh, firsthand, that, uh, and, you, and you see it all over the shops and things, you know, that society will still try and put girls and boys in different boxes and teach them that they can do different things or can only do different things because of who they are, which is just nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, the space sector really is, is, it is something that everybody is, is welcome in, and, and we, would, we want to see more people come into it because... For anything that, that you try and do in life, if people are doing things they enjoy, they'll do better at them. The space sector will be better. If you have a diverse range um, of people and mix of you know, backgrounds and opinions and viewpoints in life, you have a stronger team and, and companies is always shown to be you know, stronger. So that's, diversity is important for that. But it's, it's, for me, it's, it's really about um, trying to, to make sure that that people see the space sector as somewhere that if they're interested and they want to be involved in, they can certainly come and, and get involved with. 
just as a, a slight side note to that, so it, we've we kind of mentioned people, um, a younger generation breaking into uh, into the space industry in varying uh, a variety of different roles and whatnot. There's almost undoubtedly anyone breaking in now is going to have had much much experience with video games growing up. Um, like with that in mind, how important do you think video games are as a medium themselves to improve the the perception of of space science and engineering and whatnot? Oh, I, guess, I think they can have a hugely powerful role in in, in that and in in so many things. Um, you, you see, you, you see that in in so many different areas, and and I would say virtual reality, alternative reality, but they, they, those things are used for training purposes in the space sector. When when you're talking about um, how do you practice controlling something up in space when we're training astronauts and so on, we're using that same software, those same skills. And so they have a great ability to um, be realistic, to spark interest, uh, in you know, an entry point in there. But beyond that, it's it to me. It's it's something about well, you you can get engaged in in those games, and then you can start thinking, well, how do I make them? How do I code them? Perhaps that's an, a route in. And some of those skills will be transferred and be very practical in the space sector for for those those training and, and virtual reality things, but also so useful everywhere else because we live in this this technologically um you know world where where technology is is everywhere and underpins everything and so i, I think there's, there's a great power and responsibility that the video game world can take on to um not just be entertainment but to sort of slowly show people that there's much more to it than just entertainment I mean, we find in conversations with a lot of our player base, you know, especially around mm. around Mars Horizon, is that the authenticity of what we're trying to do really matters to them. That, mm. that the fact that we've taken an effort to add, uh, you know, to talk to people like yourself and your colleagues and your, you know, colleagues in ESA, um, like they really appreciate that. And I, th- I think ultimately we're making a much better game for those conversations. There's been lots of little parts of design, uh, game design, mm. where we had thought we'd do it one way. We've had a conversation. We've either tweaked it or even changed it. But at other points, they've just kind of validated what we're doing, where we, mm. we sort of thought, well, we did this and because we, we thought it was it. And it's like, yeah, that's right. So, you know, to you and all your colleagues, like, I, I think you engaging with us is actually helping us towards that vision of making games that 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 carry more weight than just it's fun i mean our, i believe our game is fun and i think oh. everyone who plays it will find it fun we want it to be fun but yeah there's, there's more to it than the fun like it, it you know that the what we're putting in it i hope sort of reflects all, all of the you know the, the kind of kind kind mm-hmm. time and effort that that you and your colleagues have given us it, it's a hugely hugely powerful and wonderful thing and it's uh especially from my end and I come out of it from, from a different perspective, but, but I, we talked a bit about space films and, and, and some are good and some are bad. And the ones I like, and I think the ones that were better are the ones that have taken the time to, to go and you say, is it authentic and is it there? And, and I think it's exactly the same um, in, in the video games of what you're doing. It's, it, it's that bit of authenticity makes the experience better as, as a whole and then also all these spin out what we use a very technical term spin out opportunities but it, yeah it, it leads people to think well what's it really like and and if it's if it is authentic well it means when they get there they go yeah it really is like that and it's it, it helps everybody i think so so in our game we've you're, you're we mentioned we chatted earlier about running mission control um but but on top of that as well as the mission control you're doing the budget diplomatic mm-hmm. relations and launch schedules you're designing you know the rocket design stuff uh, all, all those kind of areas i mean how much is all of that kind of slew of different things you've got to look at part of real space exploration oh it's all totally part of real space exploration what you've done is encompass several different people's jobs and um where i, I used to work in mission control and be, and be that flight director uh, dealing with the problems on, on a day-to-day basis during the actual mission. What I do now for the UK is all about budgets and policy. And uh, we work through the European Space Agency. The UK is a, a part of uh, the European Space Agency's exploration program. And my job is is holding uh, the European Space Agency to account to, to, because we, we, we invest funds in them. We want to see them spent well. Um, 
we work with our member state countries, the other countries in Europe, to and with ESA to, to steer the programme, make those decisions, which missions should we do, which ones are important. We work with scientists to, to make sure that um, the, the work we're doing is serving the scientific community and is, is making sense in, in terms of the, the research they're trying to do. Um, so all of those things that are a part of it, and some of that is, is what I do now, some of it is, is what uh, other colleagues of mine, uh, both in the UK and around Europe and around the world do, uh, but all of that is... is you. It's absolutely what happens. You, you couldn't uh, run a space program without all of those things. Um, so another part of the game is you get uh, events come up saying like, oh, there's, there's talk of maybe aliens might have been discovered. Do you want to encourage this speculation or discourage it? And sort of uh, getting the public interested in space exploration and getting them to care about it through lots of different sort of events. Um, you did that with your work with Tim Peake, didn't you? Uh, mm. Tell us a little bit about how you connected uh, his work with the public. Oh, it's been one of the highlights of my career so far has been working on Tim's flight. So I, I guess I should first explain for anyone who doesn't know the full details. Uh, Tim Peake um, was yeah, in space from December 2015 to November 2016. He was the second British astronaut. Helen Sharman was the first. Um, but it was the first time for, for, for many years that we had had a British astronaut um, in space. So, so we knew just that there would be public interest um, in this mission. It's been so long since Helen's flight and times have changed so much now. There's so much modern technology. You can, you, astronauts can share photographs in real time. There's video links, all kinds of things. And uh, the UK Space Agency, we wanted to make the most of that um, to encourage young people to, to who would be interested in this to see how exciting space can be and to open up in general their, their minds to the possibilities that, that science is good and fun and, and something that can be explored and something you can go and work in. Um, and that was my job. I, I, I uh, was, was coordinated the education programme that was aimed at, at young people. Um, but we also ran a, a big, much more general um, communications campaign to connect to the general public. And what we wanted to do there was, was use Tim's flight not just to talk about what human exploration can do, but also use it to talk about how important space is to all of us in all of our everyday lives. Because so often astronauts and, and what we do on the space station is, is the sort of media pinnacle. It, it's very beautiful. It's there all the time and, and people have a lot of interest. And people don't always realise that there are satellites up in space that we all rely on every single day um, for things like weather forecasting, anytime we pay um, with uh, money, anything that, that that's using um, satellite technology for timing, um, communications, you know, we, when we're watching um, sporting events from around the world, that's um, there because of, of spacecraft and satellite technology and satellites in space. And, and so it was a really good opportunity to, to do both of those things, so to sort of talk to the public more widely about space and to engage young people. And, and we had great success with both of them. And it was really, really such a wonderful thing to, to do, to be part of um, seeing young people's eyes sort of open up and, and learning that there's so much more to space. And it's not just an astronaut, there's loads more to it. And, and it's nearly five years since Tim headed um, up into space. And, and we still see um, that, you know, we people have changed their perceptions and, and I know young people who were still excited in space because of um, interested in space because of Tim's flight and, and it opened up their eyes to, to what was possible. It was just a, a really, really great thing that we, that we were able to do and really pleased um, with the impact that it had. Yeah, my niece is a big fan of Tim. She's only seven, but she talks a lot about, about <laughs> him and his stuff in space. It's just really sweet. <laughs> One thing I'd love to ask, um, staying on, on, on Tim Peake at the moment, had, had you got to know him a little bit before the mission at all? I, I've been fortunate enough um, to work with Tim ever since he was selected as an astronaut. Um, so you, you go right back uh, to, to when he was, it was 2008, and I was working in mission control um, uh, in Munich. Um, and yeah, and, and actually what happened was, was that Tim was one of six astronauts that was selected by the European Space Agency. Uh, and they all came down to, to Munich, but they were based in Cologne and Germany, a different part. They came to, to the control centre and we met them. And I, I made very sure at that point to just shake hands with Tim and introduce myself. I was a flight controller, 
he was an astronaut. We, I knew we'd be working together in the future. Um, and both as Brits in, in, in the programme, it, it seemed like a good connection to make. Um, and I de- the way the politics and, and things happen, there's a whole other podcast there to chat about that. But I just, at that point, neither of us had any idea in 2008 that it would be just seven years, seven, yeah, seven years later that he'd be heading into space. I think we both thought because of the, the way that the politics was at the time, it would be uh, many years later. But so I, yeah, I, I worked with Tim um, throughout my time in, in mission control. Um, and then we worked very closely with him in, in the, the preparations that we did here in the UK to support his flight. So the, the second part of my question there, um, so you'd, you'd worked with him previously and had got to know him somewhat as well. What, what I'm aching to know is what's that like then when you say goodbye to someone, when they then go into a capsule, sit on a huge tank of fuel and get fired into space? Like, what is that like saying goodbye to that person before the actual launch? Well, for, from from my perspective, um, working with crew, all, all, all the astronauts know what they're doing. And I think everybody in mission control also is very aware of what we're doing and our part in the fact that it is human spaceflight. And, and we are always, every single day, you, you are there um, making sure that the crew are safe. And, and in mission control, um, there is a, I don't want to call it a mantra, but it, it, it's always the reminder of our priorities, um, which is that we look after the crew first and, and then the vehicle and then finally the mission. The crew are always the most important thing. So um, whenever any crew head, head off, you, you're always um, very excited because they're off to, to, for their mission and the preparation that goes into it is huge. And uh, we mentioned back about that preparation for increments. You know, when you've worked with them, um, I actually worked very closely uh, with Luca Parmitano, um, the Italian astronaut, when I was doing that sort of side of things. And so you, it, it's a big moment when, when they go because it's the start of all this work you've been preparing for. Um, and, and you know that, that you'll still see them and you'll still talk to them, but, but that sort of knowledge of what they're doing is, is always there. But it is um, for, for the people at Mission Control, it's, or for me at least, it was... Um, it's part of the job, you know. It, it, it's it's uh, it's you, you just you're always pleased to see them get into orbit. You're always whenever anything launches, you always you know know the steps, and and you what you want to see at the end is them safely, successfully um, back on uh, on Earth. But what I I, I don't even pretend to um, be anything like the same, and I, and I not experience it. Someone is real friends and family. Um, that's that's another level, and and I've. Uh, I wouldn't pretend to be like that, but I think from a um, from a professional point of view, you just yeah, everyone knows what they're doing and knows what's involved, and and it's it's part of the job. So so when you've put all that work into a mission, and you know all that time and effort, and you've got the date and everything's going to go, and all the anxiety is building, how, how often is it that date has to move because of the weather or some other circumstance? And and you know, have you had experience where it's you know suddenly it's off or oh. on again? <laughs> that, oh, that that that's just life in the space industry, and um, you, you get to know different vehicles um, are, are different. So uh, when Tim uh, went into space, he flew on the, the Russian Soyuz spacecraft. Now that the Soyuz spacecraft is a vehicle that has been around essentially since the very beginning of uh, the space era. Um, I first flew, I think back in the 70s i'm going to get my exact dates wrong but it, it's got so much heritage and, and it's evolved but it's you know, it's a very reliable uh, vehicle and the, the the russians launch it in any weather really it doesn't really matter they they, they launch it and off it goes and it, it's very solid and, and we know what it's going so when the russians set a launch date you pretty much know it's going to go. And in fact, Tim's, Tim's flight did move a little bit. It, it moved uh, by about six weeks, but that was, oh, a good few months, possibly even a year, I can't quite remember, from before the launch date. And we knew, it, it was very uh, helpful, actually, for us at the UK Space Agency because we knew that that he, he was not certain to go, but Russians usually go on time. So we could plan um, a great event. Uh, we've planned four events, actually. We had four events around the UK, one at the Science Museum uh, and one in uh, Scotland, one in Wales, and there was one in Northern Ireland too. 
uh, and the media because we knew it would be going. But you go back to the space shuttle, um, you could get all the way down to seconds before launch and you could call off um, a space shuttle mission um, or scrub it or we call it, delay it because um, you are checking out and counting down and making sure in that countdown that everything is just right. And, and if there was a valve wrong or if the fuel pumps weren't quite right, it, right uh, and safety always comes first, it would shut down and, and you'd turn around and, and try it again. Um, so, so every every vehicle is is different, um, and you just it's just part of um, what happens. Launch dates move, schedules change, and uh, it, it's not entirely a joke. We would used to say for, for some vehicles, you could book your holiday around the launch date because uh, you know about a year, two years out, you knew the one time it's not going to go is when it's saying it's going to go. Um, so it, it's part and parcel of of the job and the industry. So, so with a mission, when um, you know, you one of the things we've got in the game to a certain degree, there's kind of two things where maybe there's an unexpected opportunity for you to capture something or do a bit of research, and so you're you're potentially looking to adapt. I mean, how how common is it, or is it is it really in reality too worked out to make those adaptations? Oh goodness, no! It, it's there's often opportunities and things change. Uh, I think one of the examples from, from the things that I've done it, it, it's. Um, uh, it, it depends what takes you to that opportunity. But if I, you talked about what's it like to put things on spacecraft and, and there they're going, very fortunately, it wasn't any humans I knew. But um, as part of Tim's flight, we had uh, built some. Uh, uh, we had we, well, we had some rocket seeds, some seeds from from the rocket plant. Um, were heading into space. They were going to stay in space and then be distributed to school children to grow in a great national experiment. Um, and we'd also built some other bits of kit for some educational uh, demonstrations. And they were loaded up on a rocket, ready to go into space. Everybody tuned in to watch it. Everybody had built these things. And uh, a few minutes into the launch, the rocket exploded. <laughs> and um, uh, it was it was really interesting because I had spent a long time saying to everybody we can never guarantee things are going to get into space when they are this can happen and it did and and all my poor colleagues who who were not used to this i think they were really um understandably like oh goodness me yeah and and quite sad i immediately had to get the phone to them and reassure them don't worry this happens this is why we have the backup plans we why why we know what's happening um what you know why we had spares um and i had about a week i think to turn it around because there was suddenly an opportunity to launch the, the spares um, on another different rocket and I suddenly had to, to pull all the paperwork together and make it all happen and I, I must have had it say about a week to make this happen um, and we got the, the spare payloads up on this NOS rocket that was launching just a few weeks later so, so things can change and, and especially in space when there's a problem and that problem can send you off down a, a different plan B um, sometimes you've got to seize that opportunity and, and moment and make it happen because otherwise, yeah, things will change. The launch will happen without you. Um, these things do happen. But- <laughs> same pressure, but yeah, the thing, things going wrong often. I mean, in, in our game, it's kind of a big feature of the game that actually stuff, things don't always work out. Like, it, you know, you can do everything right and the circumstance at the time just mean the mission fails, that the rocket blows up, as, as you describe. I mean, mm. again, I, I suppose, you know, it seems to me you're saying that does mirror the reality of it. So so how do you deal emotionally with the knowledge that all of your hard work could go at any moment? I've been in the industry, I think, so long now. You, you, you know that it is a possibility, so you prepare for it and you plan for it. And that comes out of my, my days in, in mission control, but it, it's also true for anyone working in project management. Or the best project managers are, are thinking, what if? But certainly anyone who's ever worked in mission control spends their life thinking, what if this and what if that? Um, and it, for me, means that when, when you get into that what if, well, you've already thought it through. So it is not such a surprise because you knew it was a possibility um, and a plan for it. And I think that, that example was, was, a, was a SpaceX 7 of the flight. Um, and while the same, my, my colleagues who were new to the 
the, the game because usually industry they, they come from educational places um i, I yeah that i think they, they were very emotionally invested in this and it was all their hard work and i was too but i i always knew that there was a chance it could it could blow up that's what happens with rockets um and so you you yeah you, you prepare for it and you deal with it and then when it comes to pass you you just sort of move into almost that method of programming go right okay so we're there now and, and we deal with it um it's a lot it's a lot of it is training um and experience and i think and it, it's it's something i i bring in in the rest of my life and I, i've been accused of being an overthinker and i i, I think that's just because i'm always going down what if this and what if that i like to be prepared so you mentioned um you have like backup plans for if it went wrong when it was launching do you also have like a lot of backup plans for when it goes wrong actually up in space the mission's carrying on out there uh yeah um we have uh plans and plans and and uh, scenario after scenario and um i mean on, on the space station at the, the, the very most basically you know, the sort of what could um go wrong well it comes back to what i was saying about first of all you think about the crew and then the vehicle and the mission um there's, there's what we on him on uh, the space station there are three there actually i think they've extended to four emergencies that they find um which are fire if there's a what happens if there's a fire what happens if there is a, a rapid depressurization something hits your space station um, and what happens if there is a, a toxic spill um, or and very specifically actually, if, if ammonia would, would to leak into the space station. And um, if in all of those, you know, the crew train, just, just like as we train, we know uh, if uh, you know, there's a fire drill or we, the fire alarm goes off, we know what to do and we practice it. And we have these fire drills and we know what's happening just in case it's real. The crew practice the same thing and they have drills for those um emergency situations in space and lower down you know the mission people in mission control run simulation after simulation after simulation to, to get ready but also just to, to keep themselves thinking about well, what if this and what if that and and that's how we practice things going wrong um basically just exactly like it, it really is a computer game we have a computer that's simulating the space station you have a team of people devious people who try and throw you off and, and they basically threats you know run a bit of code and, and they break something in our virtual space station and we have to, to figure it out and deal with it and, and that's how we we practice those, those scenarios that's how we're ready for when something bad does happen or unexpected happens um and all that training and practice also helps you that you know for those times when you haven't got the procedure to hand when it hasn't no one has thought about that we think and we think what if and what if and what if but sometimes there is some set of events that we just didn't think of but by training for that and knowing how to solve problems and knowing how to think about things we can bring that to bear on any unexpected problem and that's where mission control always comes together and and is at its best is in solving problems and and we keep the, the crew safe and we get the mission going and, and we get everything done it's such a valuable thing to learn as well i mean and it's not even linked to to anything um specific to, to working in, in a space agency and whatnot, but just learning that skill of being completely and utterly comfortable with making mistakes. Because there's so, I mean, I grew up being terrified of getting something wrong or something. That can have such a huge knock-on effect um, to, to someone who's much younger. But if you grow up and just and you're so, so, so unbelievably fine with it, you can just achieve so much more. And the space industry alone is 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 evidence of all of that. Hey, There's a lot to be said for just looking back and going, well, you know, what can I learn from that? What we do in, in the space industry all the time. And I think many people do in all sorts of different other areas. But what, you know, you look back and you go, well, what, what would I do differently next time? What can I learn? And you take that forward, then you, know, you, yeah, you do it differently, you learn from it. And I, it was... Um, I think it's I think it's uh, it was Gwen Shotwell, who's the chief operating officer of SpaceX. She she, she uh, um, as often said, you, know, you learn nothing from, from from doing everything right. You, you know, you got you got to test the failure because that's how you learn things. Um, I've got to, I've got to ask while while you're on the podcast. I know there's been this big uh, news report about um, potentially finding signs of life or signs that might be caused by life on Venus. Which mm. has some echoes of the ExoMars work that that's going on as well. Mm. Uh, um, I'm just wondering what your kind of immediate thoughts on this potentially very exciting news. It is. It, it, it's 
it's very interesting and I, I love that we found this and we, we need to go and find more and, it, and it's a big puzzle to solve um, and it's it's great I think look at it and, and I think it was the scientists who, who have announced this have spent 18 months trying to disprove it trying to find another um, potential source and are now saying to everybody what have we missed what else can you go and, and tell us and and no one is, is is out there saying this is life on Venus but it's interesting and it's unexplained and, and that's where science takes us but I'm, I, I think I'm also um reminded and 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 it's it's worth bearing in mind before before the yeah you read all the headlines you go oh goodness me you go back to the mystery of methane on mars now um if i if i if i recall all the details correctly uh it was the curiosity rover nasa's uh curiosity mars rover that um detected uh we thought uh, signs of methane on the surface of Mars, and, and actually similar to, to the phosphine in, in Venus, um, everyone say, "Well, methane could be, can be um, produced by by organic materials." So uh, I always remember that I think one of the biggest sources of methane on Earth is 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 cows, um, and and uh, cows farting essentially. Face <laughs> cows. Face cows. But. So, so there's methane on, on Mars and, and people are going, mm, well, what is it? And, and perhaps potentially, just like Venus, potentially it could be some signs of something life on Mars. And the European Space Agency then built um, a spacecraft called the Trace Gas Orbiter, um, which uh, is orbiting Mars now. And that uh, went to detect this methane, try and find out what it was, because essentially there's there's two different sorts of methane, and one of them can be created um, organically, um, and the other by 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 life, and the other can be created um, inorganically. I'm going to get some of these terms wrong, so please you know send the letters to me and tell me I've got it all wrong lately. But essentially, one can be created by by microbes, and the other can be created um, through uh, I think it's gas bubbling up through through the rocks and and, and so on and changing its processes, and and so. Th- Trace Gas Orbiter went to try and look at Mars to try and find out which one it was. And what it found was that it couldn't see any methane at all. And there was this big puzzle going, ah, but we've seen it on the surface and and, uh, Trace Gas Orbiter's not finding anything and what can this mean? And there was lots of scientific debate. And what I think we've found now, what I'm hearing is that there's now some evidence that there's perhaps a carbon dioxide um, what we call absorbed, absorption line, which is how you detect um, gases and, and looking at atmospheres, uh, right where we thought methane was. And so potentially we didn't know about this carbon dioxide line and, and it could be where the methane was. And now the sort of the explanations are shifting. And I don't say that saying that the Venus phosphine is, is or isn't. And that's what the, the scientists are saying. We say, we don't know. It's a mystery. Let's go solve it. And that's the exciting thing for me is that there's another interesting piece of the puzzle in planetary science and and in understanding things and, and you know, what we thought we knew about Venus, we, we don't know now. And this is all it all gets very interesting. And back to well, you know, why should we care here on Earth? And it's because uh, Venus is, is essentially a, a runaway. It has a runaway greenhouse um, uh, effect, uh, and you know, we have cli- climate change and global warming now. And perhaps Venus offers us some some. You know, ideas. If we understand what happened with Venus, we understand what would might happen um, on on Earth one day. And um, when you come and start talking about, well, what, you know, where is their life and is their life? That is such a sort of uh, underlying philosophical question for everybody here on Earth. Even that in itself is, is fascinating to go and explore that. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating covering all these topics, and we really appreciate you, you know getting it direct from somebody with first-hand experience of some of the things we're covering the game uh it, it it's just real it's really brilliant to hear it so um yeah a huge thank you for your time oh my pleasure thank you so much for having me on the, the podcast and i have to say well, we, it was great to join you and, and see the game a, a little while ago and it, it looks fantastic it looks like yeah, a great job it, it is it has so many different bits of, of the realism stuff there the work you've done working with the european space agency with the uk space agency is re- really shows it in the game well uh, i'll send you a copy so you can brush up so it's on top of your mission control skills <laughs> yes. 
Thank you very much. We should stamp that on the box. That should be <laughs> approval on Mars Horizon. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Libby. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I don't know where to start, um, Crowbar, with that. Because when you, we've, we've mentioned this before in other episodes, when you're talking to someone who is, you know, knee deep in that environment, in that atmosphere where they're making these kind of calls, you know, and, and I, I don't really have anything that can quite compare to that. No, Libby's job is amazing. And the, and the projects she's been involved with, like, oh, just watching, watching the launch, knowing Tim Peaks up there and like that, like, I can't even imagine that level of stress and excitement. It's yeah. so cool. Like like when you launch a game and it's out there, but like that times a million. <laughs> I'm going to ask you something now and um, you can answer it if you want or you cannot, but I'd like yeah. you to answer it. So you're, you're, you're a lover of, of, of animals. This yeah. has been, this is known in, in the previous episode of games <laughs> about animals, which you can listen to and da, da, da. Um, I can't remember what season that was. Now we've done so many, but um, so what, what would you say if your dog, cat, turtle, I don't know, um, mouse, rat, or like rat whatever. <laughs> you had a lot of animals. Yeah. Um, if one of those animals was selected to be, you know, the animal to be sent first into space for whatever reason, like what would be the, the last thing you'd say to it? Oh, I wouldn't let it happen. I'd be like, only if I'm going with them, will you be able to send my pet into space? Otherwise, you can jog on. <laughs> I wouldn't okay. be able to do it. <laughs> so that's the answer right there then. So you wouldn't say uh, necessarily something beautiful and poetic to the animal. You'd say to the to the guys in charge. <laughs> yeah, start fighting people. That's a big mood for me. <laughs> so the animal can go, but it's, it's a two-part deal because I come with it. Yeah, yeah. Me and my rat floating around in space, having a great time. <laughs> I mean, I just, I just can't understand uh, or, or even begin to think what that must be like because if you yeah. if you get to know an astronaut you know of course yeah. they're, they're hyper professional you know they're, yeah. they're going to have they may have certain boundaries that they may, they may not want to get too close to uh someone on a friendship level you know but like i just can't quite picture that that uh that conversation like that person is going somewhere where you cannot follow yeah and the the dangers attached to that are just unprecedented i can now uh, i can now say and glow about this in a podcast cause I, but i've actually spoken to an astronaut myself and he was incredibly nice uh so yeah and i think they probably all must be because as part of the selection processes you've got to get on really well with people if you're going to live mm. in that tiny space so it'd be hard not to, to get close to them i imagine because they're just really nice people yeah you just yeah. love space. <laughs> oh my gosh. Space, space. We love space. Um, now this episode has been somewhat of a uh, part one of the three that's coming up later in the, in the season. So we are going to be talking to other guests, uh, all involved within some fashion. Yeah, they're all from the UK Space Agency mm-hmm. and they've all got different areas of expertise. So we'll sort of focus on each episode, different parts. So yeah, don't miss them. Don't miss out. Cause they're really awesome guests. It's going to be super exciting. It always is on the pod, Jeff. Always is. Of course, of course. But even more exciting plus one and space. So you're all about the box art today. You're coming up with some one-liners that are just being <laughs> smashing out of the park. Amazing, amazing. It's because you called me early. <laughs> <laughs> Jem, it's been a pleasure. We'll see you in the next one. Thanks, Galaxy.